Really warm welcome to you. It's great to have you amongst us. Um, did you enjoy your lie-in this morning? Yes? First meeting, we had lots of parents with small children who didn't get the memo about the extra hour in bed, so they, they weren't so happy about it. But you guys, I imagine, are very happy. Um, if you're a visitor here, um, we hope you feel very much at home amongst us. And uh, you need to know that in this sort of section of our meeting, what we tend to do is we tend to look at the Bible together. Uh, sometimes we'll uh, go through themes that we see throughout the scripture. Uh, so we'll look at things like hope and anxiety, or we'll look at how to resolve conflict or how to handle your money, all those kinds of things. Other times we'll pick one of the 66 books of the Bible and we'll unpack it together and just let the words speak to us off the page. And you're joining us partway through a series that we're doing on the book of Colossians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that's now in modern day Turkey. And uh, we're still in Colossians chapter 1 because we're doing it reasonably thoroughly. And uh, we get to a point today where Paul wants to talk to the church in Coloss about mystery, about a mystery that he wants to unpack. Now, obviously, when I say the word mystery, it can conjure up all sorts of things. My mind immediately went to Scooby-Doo, um, but for you, it might be something different. Uh, and there are different types of mysteries, aren't there? There are some mysteries uh, that we will never understand, that are just completely beyond man to comprehend. Like, how come glue doesn't get stuck in the tube? You know, how come it doesn't set there? Uh, how did Jedward ever get a recording career? And... Where do all the biros go? You know, these sorts of mysteries are beyond the ability of science and man to understand. The biros one, however, I, I think I've got a hunch uh, on that. Uh, just to give you a, a measure of the mystery, um, we were given, or rather I was given 20,000 biros by a local company and brought them in to give to the church so that we could use them. 20,000 in boxes. It took me ages to carry them in. Do you think I can find a biro in my office now? No. They've all got 20,000 of them are gone. I think some of you thought, well, uh, we always wanted an extension on our house. We were going to use bricks, but now we've used biros uh, or something, something like that. The, the offering, just so you know, was going to be £100,000, but then, then we realised we've got to account for all the biros that have been stolen, so now it's 200000 I know where they are. They're in a drawer in your kitchen, aren't they? Biros that look just like this. Some of you ladies, you've got 15 of these in your handbag right now, haven't you? Yeah? Yeah, I know where they all are. So, so there are mysteries out there. Where do these things go? Those are some of the mysteries we will never be able to explain. However, in this passage today, Paul's got a mystery that he wants to reveal to us. He wants to lift the lid on it, if you like. It's a mystery that's been hidden for centuries but now is going to be unveiled. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there with me. If not, don't worry. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. And we're in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 24 and just read through to the end of the chapter there. So Paul is writing from Rome, where he's a prisoner, uh, which again speaks something in itself. Sometimes as Christians we think, if our circumstances are bad, then I must be doing something wrong. No, no. It's not always that way. Paul is serving God faithfully and his circumstances are really tough. Sometimes that's just the reality of things and God's drawing us into a deeper dependence on him. So he writes from his prison cell to the church in Coloss to encourage them. And he writes this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Excellent, amazing stuff. There's far more in this passage than we could possibly unpack in our time available this morning. There's one area I do want to zoom in on in a moment. But before I do that, the astute amongst you will have noticed that there's a slightly tricky verse in this passage. I wonder if you picked it up. It's right there at the beginning, verse 24, where Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. At first glance, it seems like Paul is saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. It was lacking somehow, and he has to make up for what's missing, which is sort of great slightly, doesn't it? Or hopefully quite a lot. And then when you compare that to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, which says this, it gives us some problems. Verse 14 says this, For by a single offering he has perfected, that being Jesus, for all time those who are being sanctified or being made holy. That's you and me. So it's saying Jesus did do enough. And then in just a few verses earlier, the passage that Steve read during the, during the worship was this. Paul says of Jesus that he makes peace by the blood of his cross. So you can see the problem is that it is what Jesus did, is that enough or isn't it enough? I did speak to someone earlier on this week and I said to, to the guy, well, look, you know, I've got this tricky, tricky verse right at the start of my passage and showed it. And I said, any thoughts on how I should handle this? And he replied, yes, read quickly and hope nobody notices. Um, I'm pretty sure he was joking, but uh, I, I think perhaps we should just examine this briefly because sometimes tough, tough passages help reveal something that we haven't understood before. Just before this verse... Paul is saying some other things. And whenever you come across a tricky verse, you always want to take it in context. You want to look at what happens before and what's said afterwards. So just before this verse, Paul has been expounding about Jesus' preeminence and superiority. That's what Phil spoke on a short while ago. He's saying that Jesus is above all things and before all things, and he's able to present us holy and blameless. So then it's really unlikely that he's suddenly going to go schizophrenic and speak on something completely contradictory. So unless Paul has lost his mind, and I don't think he has, judging from the intellect of the guy, he's, he's saying something slightly different. So then when you look past this verse, and you look down at verse 26, we see that Paul is saying that God is making something known that's been hidden for generations. And that's why he's struggling, verse 29, working so hard to let others know about it. So if you put the two together, that Jesus is preeminent and able to save us, which he says beforehand, and then afterwards, that we need to let Jesus be known around the world, then you start to see what Paul is actually trying to say. He's not saying that what Jesus did was lacking or insufficient, but rather what's lacking is us telling people about Jesus. That's the bit that is missing. So it's like Paul's saying, we've got the best kept secret in town. I want to let everybody know about it. That's my mission. That's where I, in my own body, need to make up for what's missing so far. Not that Jesus is insufficient, but the knowledge of Jesus around is insufficient. John Piper, a well-respected theologian, puts it like this. Paul's sufferings fill up Christ's, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to bless. Does that make sense? So the cover is lifted off. 
And Paul's saying, Jesus has done it all. But what's missing is letting people know about this mystery. Verse 29, I need to proclaim it to everyone, he's saying. He's utterly and totally committed to sharing this revelation with everyone and anyone he possibly can. So that then, now that we've understood that, that then begs the question, well, what is this mystery? What is this mystery that he's lifting the lid on? Well, simply put, the mystery is this. It's an ancient truth that is now being unveiled. You see, for centuries, the Jews had believed that only they would be the people of God, that the Saviour, the Messiah, would come to them and exclusively them as a people. But now, the shocking truth has been revealed, that Jesus is available to everybody, regardless of your background or ethnicity. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6 says this, The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Stick a hand in the air for me this morning if you don't have Jewish blood in your veins, or at least don't think you do, okay? You you don't think you're Jewish descent. Yeah, the vast majority of us, some of us weren't sure, aren't Flo, not sure, okay, but the vast majority of us don't have Jewish blood in our veins. We are Gentiles, you and me, but because of Jesus, we get to partake in relationship with God. God's rescue plan for mankind went way beyond just a narrow section of the world. It's available to everybody. And that has massive implications for us individually and corporately, both as sons and daughters, but also for us as a body of believers. I really want to zoom in on verse 27, which sort of begins to expound that a little bit for us. Paul puts it like this. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that phrase has really skewered me this week. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? It sounds really good. What does it mean? Well, firstly, it has implications for us individually. Christ in us. Many of you will remember the terrible tsunami that swept across large parts of Southeast Asia back in 2004 on Boxing Day, and the devastation and the photos of the devastation in that whole area. Well, I remember reading one story that came out of the middle of all that chaos and destruction, and uh, it was the story of how a a few-week-old baby boy was discovered on the shoreline on the eastern coast of Sri Lanka, and they just found him there amongst all the flotsam and jetsam. And uh, some strangers picked him up, and uh, they took him to a local hospital. And he was named baby number 81, simply because he was the 81st admission to the hospital that day. But what the hospital staff couldn't possibly know is that a short distance away, a husband and wife called Muru and Janita were desperately searching for their lost son. Eventually they heard about this boy at the hospital, and so they made their way there in an effort to try and see if it was him and to reclaim him if at all possible. The trouble was, as you can imagine, so many families were shattered and fractured by the tsunami that the authorities were really struggling to find out whose child belonged to who. And a number of parents thought this might be their child. So as a result, the parents that were looking for their children were allowed to see this baby through the glass, but weren't allowed to touch him. 
In the end, the only way that they could resolve the issue was they took blood samples from this baby and blood samples from the different parents around, and they sent them to Colombo, the capital, to have them analysed. A couple of weeks later, these blood samples come back and prove unequivocally that Muru and Janita are the parents of baby 81. And the photo you see up on the screen now is the moment that after weeks of waiting, they finally get to pick up their child and hold him in their arms. And you see the sense of delight and relief on this father's face, don't you? He was no longer just a number. He was once again Abilas, the name that his parents had given him. Jesus said this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The moment you decide to follow God with your life, you're adopted into God's family. And the best way that I can put it is your spiritual DNA is changed to be like his in that instant. You know, 50% of your genetic material comes from your mother and 50% of your genetic material comes from your father. But 100% of your spiritual DNA comes from your heavenly Father. You are in Christ. And that means that no one can ever take it away. No one can ever rob you of it. This couple here, all of their belongings, all the birth certificate, every piece of evidence was washed away in the tsunami. Every photograph they had of them with their child. But one thing that couldn't be taken away was the DNA that was embedded in their son. In the same way you and I have spiritual DNA says, that says this person is property of Jesus Christ, right. that we belong to him, and nobody can ever take that from you. It is secure, it is written for eternity. Right. Your name is written on the palm of his hands. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life, if you're a follower of Jesus. Yes. If you're not, you can have that yes. this morning. That could be your right too. God wants us to be 100% thoroughly secure in our identity in him. You never actually graduate from the school of identity. It's always God's taking you to a deeper level. And for many of us, we, we get sucked into being extremely busy for Jesus without realizing how valued we are by Jesus. And for many of us, we get in this whirlwind of activity, particularly in a busy place like this. And actually the danger is we lose sight of the core of our relationship with him. That we would be much better off being less busy, but actually more effective. Mm. Busyness and effectiveness are two different things. The way you become more effective is you discover who you are in God. Let that seep into your very bones. For some of you this morning, that's what, that's what this was all about. That's why you, you got out of bed and came here this morning. Because God wants you to know you are his and nobody can snatch you out of his hands. And everything we do comes from that place of security. So you can see this has relevance. Christ inside us has relevance for our individual walk with God. But secondly, not only this, it says Christ in us, the hope of glory. So it's talking about something future. We're hoping for some, something. The danger is when we talk about hoping for something, though, is that we kind of read it through our own lens of our culture. And when we use the word hope, we tend to use it in a kind of wishful thinking sort of way. So we'll say something like, well, you know, I, I hope that Man U beat Chelsea this afternoon, or I hope I win the lottery, or I hope, I, hope this talk finishes soon. All of which are just sort of meaningless, wishful, vague, empty thinking that won't actually amount to anything. 
You see, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about certainty, not about probability. Yes. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something that is secure, that is cast iron, that is written down. Because its source is the promises of God. It's the object of who you're hoping in that brings the security. Think of it a little bit this way. Um, imagine that um, I win a competition and I get given a luxury holiday at a five-star resort. And I fly off to some exotic location and as I go, drive up to the hotel, I see that they've got an amazing swimming pool complex. And I think to myself, I'm going to go and, go and swim in the pool here. And um, this, this could very well be me. Um, and I, and I, I go up to the edge of the pool, and I think to myself, I'm going to stand on the edge of the pool, and, and I, I'm going to dive in. And many of you will be familiar with that experience of diving into a pool. And, and as you dive in, the first time you dive in, there's a little bit of nervousness, isn't there? If you're honest, as you dive into the pool, you know, different things are going through your head, like... Um, well, um, I hope the water's not too cold. Uh, I hope I don't do a belly flop. And uh, I hope my trunks don't fall down. Those are the sorts of things that very often, for guys, that would be what fills our minds. Okay, and you dive in. But what you won't be thinking is, I hope I make it to the water. Will you? That doesn't, I've never thought that. The reason being, I've jumped in many swimming pools over many years, and every time gravity has worked out very well for me. You know, it's always been there, and I've made it to the water. Take a look at this next photo. This guy here. Um, this. This, um, this might be slightly closer to what I actually look like rather than how I, I imagine it. Um, we don't need to see a video of what happens next, do we? You know, we can imagine what happens next. This man diving into the pool is not thinking, I hope I make it to the water. That is a done deal. He might be thinking, I hope the water stays in the pool, but uh, that's a different issue altogether. He's going to hit the water, isn't he? And people around him are going to know it. Why? Because gravity works every single time. He's, he doesn't have to wishful think this. It's hope. It's certain. He's definitely going to hit that water and he will definitely be immersed and surrounded by that water. Because gravity has worked for him every time up until now. Why shouldn't it work again? You see, when it comes to hearing about our identity, our identity is spoken over us by the one who holds gravity in his hand. He holds all the laws of physics in place. It's as cast iron as gravity, if you like. So when God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that no one can snatch you out of my hand, we can take that to the bank. You can stake your life on it. It might be this morning that you have all sorts of questions about faith and about the validity of Jesus and, and whether or not he really did live, die, and was risen again. If so, can I say to you, get to the point, drill down into that truth, to you hit bedrock that you can stake your very life on it. You know, when it comes to facts about the resurrection, facts are our friend. We don't have to fear them. You can ask tough questions of the resurrection. You can research. You can go on an alpha course. You can come and ask me for book recommendations to get to the point where you are solid and sure Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Therefore, everything that he said about life and death are true. And everything he said about me is true. And I can stake my life on it. I don't have to spend my life on wishful thinking because I've got a certain hope in Jesus. That is your right. Romans 5 says this, Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the glory of God. Because that can be the promise over your life. Paul's able to write these words from a prison cell. He's no longer affected by his circumstances. Instead, he sees this life for what it is. It's passing and momentary. His thoughts 
uh, for the future and the glory that awaits him. So as individuals, we can get security from this verse because it means that we've got an understanding of how much we're loved and how safe and secure we are with our Heavenly Father. It has implications for each one of us as individuals. But lastly, I want us to realize that it doesn't stop there. Because this verse has implications for us corporately, all of us as a family. You see, uh, in the text here, when it says Christ in you, the hope of glory, in the Greek, the original language, it's actually you plural, not you singular. And we run into difficulties because the English language just uses the same word. It can mean all of us or it can mean individual. But actually, it's saying to all of us. Um, I think uh, in some ways, the Americans have really helped us because uh, they've added other words to the English language that help explain this, give a sense of the corporateness of it. And uh, in the first service, I, I tried to read this out, and um, it was, uh, it's the word y'all. So if you're from the South in America, y'all is, is saying all of us. And I, I did my best accent. To be honest, the only research I had was from the Dukes of Hazard, so it wasn't really the best preparation. <laughs> but I thought, we've actually got someone here who's from the South in the States, and I thought I would get her to read it, as it properly should be read, closer to the Greek. So I'm going to ask Faith Dwight to come and read it for us. Great. So, I'll tell you what, Faith. Well, I think we could do with a couple of verses being read in a proper southern accent, don't you? So, Faith, why don't, why don't you read from, um, well, read from verse 24 to the end of verse 27. How's that? Okay, sure. Give it your full on southern accent, yeah? <laughs> now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is a Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. Brilliant. I just love that. You just want to keep listening to faith, don't you, really? That's, yeah, that's it. It's saying here, Christ in y'all, in, in all of... It sounds inadequate when I say it now, doesn't it? <laughs> can't, can't deal with that. Christ in y'all, it's every single one of us. So it's Christ in us as a body, as a family. And so many of the phrases that we read in Scripture, we read them as if they're singular. And from our individualistic worldview, that's not always that helpful. So when you come across verses like Matthew 5 verse 13, it should actually be read, y'all are the salt of the earth, y'all are the light of the world. Yeah, do you get it? That's, that's what we are. We are all together the salt of, of salt in the world and light of the world. It, it's, it's our impact together that makes such a difference. This means that the hope of glory that Paul's referring to isn't just for each one of us individually to get a ticket to heaven, but actually the hope of glory is that the hope of glory of God will be distributed and manifest amongst all of us together. Right. That when we get together, we speak about the glory of God, not necessarily through what we say, but who we are and the way that we interrelate and the things that we do together. In other words, that together, corporately as a family, we are salt and light and we are city on a hill. Um, 
just uh, last week, uh, I got uh, an email through from my brother. Now, um, just to give you a little bit of background, my brother uh, runs a small uh, c- uh, company manufacturing golf clubs called Orca Golf. And uh, one of his employees, a guy called Alex, is a Christian, as are everybody in the company. And uh, he drew up to a petrol station and uh, filled up his car with petrol and then went in to pay. And uh, in the little shop there, there was a big, long queue. And there was obviously some sort of disturbance. And uh, he realized that the problem was with the lady at the front of the queue. And she was extremely anxious and distressed because she'd put her card into the machine and entered her PIN three times, but it had been refused all of those three times. And so she was surprised and embarrassed and anxious. And the people behind her in the queue weren't terribly patient with her. So Alex, is a really good guy, suddenly thought, well, I wonder if this is a God opportunity. You know how God puts opportunities in our day and appointments that God has arranged for us. And so he bypasses the queue, walks straight to the front, and he says to the lady, look, I know you don't know me, but how about this? How about I pay for your petrol and the drink you're going to buy for your son? Let, let, let me pay for that. And uh, so she's overwhelmed and a bit confused and bemused. And so he pays and pays for his own petrol and drives away and thinks nothing more of it. But what he hadn't realized that down the side of his car is on the livery, there's advertising saying Orca Golf. And this lady sees him drive away, does a search online as to who Orca Golf is, and then sends uh, an email to the managing director, which is my brother. And uh, she sends this email to him. She says... Um, Hi there, I was hoping someone might be able to help pass a message onto the gentleman who out of nowhere helped me on Friday. I was a bit of an emotional wreck because I was unable to pay for the petrol at the garage after my card was rejected three times. I don't know the name of the kind man who offered to pay for the fuel and drink for my son. I didn't get the chance for ask, to ask for his name, but I can describe him. And She then goes on to describe him. She says, I was unable to thank him properly in the garage as it was a total shock that anyone would do this. He seemed a very cheery guy who insisted on helping me. I just want him to know that I'm deeply grateful and knowing that there are kind-hearted strangers out there willing to help others is a really nice feeling as it was a great end to a difficult week. Would you pass my email on to him so I can arrange to repay him even though he said not to worry about it? My brother then replies to her and there's just a snippet of what he put. He says, thanks for the email, Rebecca. I know who he is from the description. Please do not feel there's anything to repay, but do remember someone in need and show compassion on them where you can the next time you see it. I'm fortunate that my office is filled with people who have a strong faith in God, and sometimes we believe he puts people across our path just for a moment who need him, and we just act on that. See, here's the thing. I reckon that lady's world got rocked that day when she received that email. You see, I think she, she had the act of kindness from Alex, which was overwhelming her, but I reckon she left that petrol sta- station thinking, what a lovely man, what a nice man, how kind. Then she gets a reply from my brother, and all of a sudden she realizes, hang on, it's not just an isolated individual who's a nice man, but there's a whole community of people who believe this and act this way. You see... So many of the people we come across, we, we think, well, it's just, just me. All the stats actually prove that people who become Christians, on average, have come across seven other Christians who have impacted their lives. The power is not in us as individuals. The power is in us as a body, as a community of believers, because they see a quality of life and the way that we respond to one another and generosity that we demonstrate towards each other, and they are overwhelmed. 
In a society that is becoming increasingly individualistic and selfish, a community of faith can change the world. I, I, um, I, was, I was out in the coffee shop earlier on this week, I think it's Tuesday, I think, and I was queuing up for my coffee, and at a table just near the queue, um, I accidentally overheard a couple of, couple of ladies having coffee, and um, one sort of leant into the other and, and beckoned the other friend in, and she said, she said, you'll never guess what. And her friend said, no, what? And she said, this place where we're meeting is a church. And, and her friend said, no, get away. That can't be a church. She said, no, no, it's true. They've got a big hall they meet through. They're through there. It's really a church. And they went, no, it can't be. And they were having this sort of mini discussion, stroke argument over whether or not this could possibly be a church building. I, I love the fact that what God has enabled us to do together means that ladies are having coffee out there and are totally blown away that this could possibly be a church building. I love the fact that a whole load of Doctor Who fans are going to come and meet in our church building and have their world rocked. As this is what Christianity looks like. When we can open up our doors to the community, when they can see us care for one another, help one another move house, make meals for one another when we're sick, when they can see the way that we love one another, it can change the world. I've, I've got a friend who I haven't seen in a number of years now, he's called Simon, and uh, he and I were uh, met very, on the very first day in our law course um, at Kingston many years ago, and then very quickly I made friends with him and another guy called Mark, who was also a Christian. Now, Simon wasn't a Christian. Um, within the first two months, we had our Christian Union house party, and if any of you have ever been on anything like that, the kind of wild, fun affairs, and we invited this Simon along, and slightly uh, gullible he was, bless him, he turned up and came along and it was a weekend of not much sleep and crazy games and a few Bible studies and just hanging out together. And uh, it was three days after that weekend where he came and just saw Christian community in action. He said, Paul, I'd like to meet with you. And we sat down and in his bedsit, he asked Jesus into his heart. Last thing I knew, he got married, went to Bible college and is now a Baptist minister in the West Country. Why? Because he saw love in action. He saw that together we are the hope of glory, that God does something in us corporately together. You know, in a minute we're going to take up our offering together, and I've got to be honest with you, I don't really mind what you give. It's between you and God. I'm not after your money, please hear me. Rather, I'm after your heart. Because our enemy would seek to divide us and pick us off and tell us we don't count or we don't fit in or we don't belong here. I'm after your heart as part of this family. Because together God can do something amazing in our society, in this town, in the nation and the nations beyond. That's why we're going for these goals. That's why we're going for 20 small groups so that people can feel part of things. That's why we're getting 200 of us to pray for our neighbours and overseas. That's why we're getting us to go for 2,000 acts of courage, a step of boldness that people might know about Jesus. That's why we're going for 200,000 pounds, that we might have more people come into this building and have conversations over whether or not this is really a church building, that we might make a difference in this world. People, you were born for more than just coming along here on a Sunday, being entertained, and then racing the children to a donut at the end. I, I really hope this... I really hope this blesses you, this place, and coming here on a Sunday. But you're about more than attending on a Sunday morning. You're meant to belong. You were made to fit. 
And without you, we don't have all that it takes. God has called you here. If you, if you sense God saying that to you, if there's a resonance in your heart, play your part to the full.